Happy birthday, kind of. Today, it's a special best of first anniversary episode. And for you, that means you can get caught up in a hurry. Want some expert insights on all things business messaging to help you manage the everyday conversations in and around your organization? Well, you're about to hear from a former FBI hostage negotiator, a baseball team owner, CNN's former chief White House correspondent, an expert on meetings, an NFL quarterback, several best-selling authors and entrepreneurs, and more. I'm Jim Carr, and this is the Manage Your Message Podcast. Welcome to the Manage Your Message Podcast, where professionals come for ideas and inspiration to grow by talking about their businesses more effectively and getting lots of other people to do the same. Here is your host, consultant, professional speaker, and author, Jim Carr. Come on in and welcome to the Manage Your Message podcast. I'm Jim Carr. I help professionals and entire organizations to get the most out of their everyday business conversations, the ones that generate by far the most growth opportunities. It's time to get away from messages that aren't compelling or conversational to take the pressure off a select few in your business who are the only reliable messengers, and to build more consistency in how everyone in and around your business talks about it. That means improvements in revenue, customer engagement, employee engagement, and your brand and reputation. I help through consulting, professional speaking, and advisory work. You can learn more at jimcarr.com, K-A-R-R-H. My new book is available from Career Press, it's titled, The Science of Customer Connections, Manage Your Message to Grow Your Business. You can find it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Indie Books, the audio version on Audible and Apple, basically anywhere great business books are sold. You can also find a sample on my website, the introduction and chapter one, so that you can try before you buy. We bring all of this together for you because, simply put, it's easier to grow your business when you are a message manager. This podcast is one of the several ways you can get practical ideas for managing your message, ranging from my free message manager memo newsletter to my book to having me come to your meeting or company. Now, podcasting is growing, but individual podcasts come and go. Often they come and go within a very short time frame. We have come to the end of our first 12 months, actually slightly past it, building great momentum. Listeners now from 16 countries, the last I checked. New message manager listeners are coming all the time. And even veteran listeners generally can't listen to every single episode as soon as it comes out. So this seems like the appropriate opportunity to help you catch up or to get a sample of my interviews in order to perhaps go into the archives and check out some episodes in more detail. Our focus here is on business messaging and leadership. And we invite guests who are living it themselves, or who can offer you fresh research and perspectives, how to craft a better story, how to build and serve a network of relationships and messengers, habits that will build consistency and scale. There was no good way to select favorites from our first year. I am admittedly leaving too many great episodes out, but here goes anyway. Just know there's a lot for you to sample with more to come. Our first clip points out the profound business problem in messaging today, but only for anyone who needs to sell something, which is pretty much everyone. Tim Pollard 
is an author, speaker, and head of a group called Aradium that works with business-to-business sales organizations. In episode 14, Tim spoke to the vast divide between the confidence sellers have in their offerings versus the confidence they have in the messaging behind those offerings. Tim also talked about why so much commercial messaging, in his opinion, misses the mark. If you talk to companies of all stripes and types and you ask them how good are the core solutions they've developed for their marketplace, if you give them a 1 to 10 scale, you can actually measure this empirically and you get back the number of 8.1 out of 10. So companies self-assess that the solutions they've made are really pretty good. And I think they're right. I mean, some of the finest minds in the world are out there building technology solutions for their customers. But when you ask those same companies, how well do you tell the story of that solution? I mean, it's harder to get, to get in front of a customer. When you do, you don't get as much time and they're more distracted. So you've got this very tough environment in which to tell the story. They uniformly, universally report that they just do not do a very good job. And on that same one to 10 scale, you get a number of 3.9. So here you have these companies, you know, either in the high tech or the engineering or the technical or the biotech or the medical devices areas, great products, the finest minds have designed them. They do solve real customer problems, but we just do not seem to be able to tell the story very well. And as you noted earlier, the problem is messaging is, is just dense, confusing, hard to follow, hard to understand, and not in the least bit sticky. If you actually look at most commercial messaging, there are three hallmarks that are really toxic. There are three toxic hallmarks and almost all companies, their messaging actually displays all three hallmarks. One is far too much information. We have an absurd idea of how much a human brain can take in. So we just pack as much as we possibly can in. And then we wonder why people just glaze over. The second toxic hallmark is messaging is so confusing. It's so unclear what the true value proposition is. We fill our stuff with technical material. We don't give it a logical narrative structure or flow. So people just don't understand really what we're saying to them. And that's incredibly common. And then the third hallmark is we are so sender oriented. We love to talk about ourselves. We love to talk about, hey, this is our history and how we got started and how many awards our product has won. And we tend to come at the construction of the argument from the standpoint of what's interesting to us and what we're most wanting to talk about, what we're most proud of, that is the least bit interesting to a customer. So when you barrage a customer with 120 dense PowerPoint slides that are technical, illogically structured and confusing, and mostly about yourself, then it's really not surprising that you're lucky even sometimes to get through the meeting. It's really not surprising that nothing sticks. And that so many times sales we could and should have won, deals we could and should have won, we don't win because we were just let down so badly by our messaging. That was Tim Pollard in episode 14. And by the way, we have hosted several sales superstars, authors, speakers, business owners. Here on the Manager Message podcast, we have had guests along the lines of sales experts you'll enjoy listening to, guests like Anthony Anarino. Ian Altman, Todd Capone, Rod Santamassimo, Jeff Davis, and Rick Cesari, too, to name just a few. And while we are on the topic of confidence and the lack of it in business today, let's refer back to episode 19 with Deborah Gardner. Deborah is both a professional speaker as well as a CMP, or Certified Meetings Professional. We spoke about how meetings professionals and speakers can best work together 
in order to use in-person events as a way to build confidence among participants. That is such a new term or theme that is being requested. But what I have seen as far as thinking about this and how I would even apply into my training or, or keynotes is to make sure that they're able to participate or interactively test out the message or the topic or the information given. In other words, speakers have to start letting go and trainers have to start letting go of control of putting this all together for them because attendees, that's, I think that's why the, the whole attendee terminology is going away because attendees come to consume, whereas participants come to be interactive and they're not going to be spectators. They want to participate. And so to help build that confidence, I truly believe having them participate right there, right then, immediately, so they know how to utilize the material or the information given before they walk out that door, back to their office, back into their real world. So it's almost like a test drive before driving a car off the lot. You wouldn't just buy a car looking at it. You actually have to test drive it around town to see if this is going to be the car for you. It's the same thing that we as keynoters or educators or trainers, facilitators, coaches, even speaker bureaus out there, we really need to help find a way to help build the confidence. Again, I believe all through participation immediately. Deborah Gardner, CMP in episode 19. Some guests allow us to go behind the scenes to things not visible to the outside world. One of my earliest guests turned out to be one of the most intriguing and popular, likely because of his varied background. Chip Massey is a consultant who spent years as an FBI special agent and hostage negotiator, and prior to that was a Methodist minister. I asked Chip to join the podcast because of his experience in building rapport, deepening relationships, and asking questions, among other topics. Part of the fun was having Chip take us behind the scenes of a kidnapped negotiation team, including how the FBI makes sure in the moment there's one consistent voice to the criminal, but also how a coach and other team members are there to help in real time. There's a training, there's a method, you know, it's not that we just go in there and we, we figure it out as we go along as you have picked up in your, uh, to the point of your question. So the first thing that we would do, that I would do if going into a situation like this is, I want to know as much about the kidnapper as possible, right? I want to know where they are, what their living condition is like, how old they are, obviously gender. Do they have any demands yet? How many people are being held? What's the ages of the people being held? Is it a person uh, that is close to them? Is this the kind of kidnapping where it is mostly about that other person and not so much about what they want in terms of demands. You have to figure out from the outset as early as you can these very basic things that you're facing. It's also important to know we go in with a team. Sure, there's the times when you're just you're out and about and you get a call and you've got to respond to that location. But when we roll out in general, we go with a team. The word goes out, the team gets together you head out to the address. You know, usually there's a command structure set up. There's SWAT. There's uh, evidence recovery. There's all kinds of people out there. But it's your job to bring the team together, 
and for the team to do their job. And so the person that is going through the, the checklist, the person that is the primary for the negotiation, you know, we would just call them the, the primary negotiator. Then the person sitting next to you is a coach. And the coach's job is to listen to the conversation that you're having with the kidnapper and to feed you information and questions and other things you might be missing when you're establishing a dialogue with the kidnapper. So in that room, in that if it's if it's a room or if it's the back of a van or even in you know in a car, there's silence because it's just you and the kidnapper. You're trying to establish that connection. You're trying to establish rapport. And incidentally, Jim, as you know through your you know your work experience, you have precious little time to establish that connection. There are some studies that say you have 10 seconds or less to actually make a connection to a person, whether they're going to identify with your with who you are and what you stand for and respect your opinion and maybe work toward, you know, accepting your guidance. You have precious little time. So it is very important that from the outset, we establish that relationship. That was Chip Massey. We had a two-part conversation, episodes two and three. Another interesting behind-the-scenes conversation, by the way, was with a real orchestra conductor, maestro Roger Nirenberg, in episode 15. Now, next, I wanted to move from the workings of a team to the story of an entrepreneur who made a profound professional change. Andy Cohen-Healy had worked with an advertising agency in Chicago, then managed satellite operations for MTV. Then she somehow wound up creating and selling one-of-a-kind headpieces for brides and partygoers, as well as vintage pieces. In episode 34, Andy talked about how, as a creative entrepreneur, she stays in touch with customers and is sometimes surprised by the customers drawn to her work. In my case, there was a huge amount of trial and error because my business is not really defined. It's not under a category. My client base is so broad that I found that the most effective way to reach people was just to pay attention to who's buying my product. And I had my brides who, as you and I talked about, that that was really my first love that I wanted to create something that was as special for them as my piece was for me. And that continues to this day to be who my bride is. But since I found out that the broad-based bridal market was not really interested in what I was doing, it was too specialized, it was unique. My customer is not someone who's going to a store like David's Bridal, big box bridal type store. That That's not who would come to me. So when I really started looking at, well, who is coming to me? How are they finding me? That helped me refine and define who my customer was. And I I had to follow that. In a million years, I would not have thought the burlesque community. That, that's not the first thing that would spring to mind when you think, <laughs> well, who might my customer be? Or a Disney person. These are things that developed and I had to pay attention because there was consistency and momentum and... So it didn't matter that I myself am not a Disney person or a burlesque performer, but in talking to these people, I've learned what what they're interested in and I've catered to that. So that's where I've been able to use some of my past experience of really listening and paying attention to what the trends are and who the customer is. 
That was Andy Cohen-Healy of The Feathered Head in episode 34. My very first guest, Dory Clark, who also wrote the foreword to my book, shared a lot of practical insights there in episode one. That's not surprising for a prolific entrepreneur, multiple best-selling author, and builder of now nine streams of income. But Dory is also an introvert and someone who is sensitive to how entrepreneurs and other business professionals can be effective in sales without selling quite so much, at least you know, not in the traditional sense. Here, Dory talks about the value of stories and in creating banks of stories. I'm actually a really big fan of story banks, meaning making a conscious effort for you personally or your company to collect anecdotes and write them down, you know, log them and write them down that illustrate certain key points that you want to have. So for instance, let's say whatever your company does, you have three products or three, you know, three services that you provide. If you can have let's say three stories that you kind of keep in rotation. You know, I mean, more is better because they can be as targeted as possible. But let's say for starters, you have three stories about each of those three service lines. That's that's actually amazing because it does a couple of things. One is it enables you when you're talking to prospective customers or the media or whomever to just get a better sense of what you do. People remember stories a lot more. You might say, oh, I do, you know, integrated network, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, they're not going to get it. But if you tell a story about a successful engagement with a client, it makes a lot more sense and sticks with them. Second, it enables you, frankly, to sell without selling because nobody perceives it as, oh, he's making a sales pitch when you're telling a story about somebody that you've helped. But if you tell that story, it's actually a very powerful, powerful way to get the person listening to say in their own head, oh, I, I'm, I'm like that person. I could probably use that service as well. And so they're, they're basically making the sale for themselves. That was Dory Clark. Another way to stand out is to ask good questions. Who better to learn about good question asking than through an Emmy-winning journalist and interviewer? Episode 21 featured Frank Sesno whom you likely knew as the former CNN host and chief White House correspondent, also the author of the book, Ask More. I picked out two clips. The first was from our conversation about healthcare and the unfortunate fact that physicians don't spend much diagnosis time asking questions of patients. We in business can benefit from asking more of what Frank calls the what's going on question. I'm really glad you raised it in this way. And I just have to say before I answer your question, the biggest surprise for me out of writing this book has been its reception among doctors and the medical profession. And in so many cases, I've been asked to come and speak or I've had conversations with them. And they've said, we're not actually very good at this, which is completely counterintuitive because you think doctors are supposed to say, hey, how you doing? What's going on here? And it's for a variety of reasons, not the least of which is our messed up healthcare system in this country where docs don't have enough time, but also electronic medical records where your doc walks in with a laptop and proceeds to bury his or her nose in the laptop instead of looking at you yes. and filling out a bunch of questions. And I actually heard of one software that many of these docs use, and it's the fourth question that asks, how are you? <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. So I think that my response to you is that these diagnostic questions, which are really the what's going on here questions, 
need to be careful and thorough. You're looking for information. You want to open the conversation in a non-threatening way so that you will put your patient or your counterpart at ease. You don't want to start someone on the defensive. You don't want them to start feeling on edge. You want them to be comfortable. You want to determine what it is you need to know and what good doctors do. They will ask you an open-ended question, what we call an open-ended question, how you doing to see where you go. And then they will narrow in. They will do history, what's called history taking. Well, how long has this been going on? And when did you first notice it? And has it changed over time? And what have you done for it? And has that worked? Because they are taking that information and their knowledge and combining them to try to figure out before they hook you up to some diagnostic machine, what may be going on. I refer to these as sort of the ground floor of questioning. And it's really information gathering. And it's done or should be done in every business and every home and every, you know, critical decision that a family confronts. Because if you don't have the information and you don't have a good lay of the land, you're working from a flawed set of facts, right? There's a lot of talk about this in the country these days, right? You got to get the facts first and you need to ask the right questions to get the right information so you know that you've got the full story. Frank and I also went behind the scenes a bit from his time at CNN. We talked about the interview strategy of Larry King and how it was effective, even though it drove many of the journalists there a bit crazy. He sure was. And they wanted to go on the air and he drove us, the reporters, crazy, (laughs) right? Because if Senator Winbag was going to go on his show or a presidential candidate or whoever it was going to be, of course, we'd been covering that same person and we wanted Adam to grill them, right? Senator Winbag, three weeks ago, you said, blah, 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 blah. Do you still stand by those words? Two days ago, you said, blah, blah, blah. Why the flip-flop? And Larry would have him on and say, so how you doing? <laughs> right. Larry had this thing about when he had authors on the show, and he made this public, he would not read their book. I sat in for Larry King on many occasions. I called down to the producer one time, and I said, have you got so-and-so's book? I'd like to see it. And there was silence on the other end of the phone. They said, well, what do you want the book for? <laughs> and I said, well to read it. (laughs) Isn't that what we're going to talk about? Yeah. So here's why. Larry's approach on the book, for example, was I want this show to resonate with the common person on the street. The common person on the street has not read this book. How would that person ask questions of this author if they had an opportunity? What's the book about? Why'd you write it? What's the best part about it? What's the big secret? What did you discover from it? And as I said, it drove many of the journalists there, especially when he was doing this with an elected member of Congress or a president or something like that, crazy. But to be totally fair and to look at it with some time now, really what Larry was doing at the top of those interviews was doing what I mentioned the doctor should do at the beginning of the appointment. It's that open-ended question. It's that non-threatening question. It builds a rapport. It builds a sense of trust. It breaks the ice. Try it. How you doing? Why'd you do this? How can this be better? Now, what Larry didn't always do, although sometimes he did, was to zero in, as you say, with, you know, (laughs) the killer app at the right moment. You know, it can't be all open-ended softball questions or you're just handing somebody a microphone and saying, go ahead and make a commercial. That's not very interesting. And it's certainly not appropriate in politics where you're really trying to hold somebody accountable to something. But there's a message there in a business, in a professional relationship, in a personal relationship, the power that people don't even think about of that Simple, sincere, how you doing? Why'd you do this? What comes next? What do you think about it? I can't emphasize enough how valuable that is. 
One of the great opportunities as a message manager, and also a common source of anxiety, is in the area of building your network of messengers. The topics of networking and relationship building are popular and timely. The expert on business relationships and their economic value is my friend David Knorr. David's best-known book is titled Relationship Economics, and he has followed up with a book called Co-Create. In episode 35, David spoke about the strategic value of a diverse portfolio of business relationships, people in different industries and with different perspectives. It is a discipline, right? It's a discipline to first and foremost build relationships and cast as wide of a net as possible. And this is the way I want you and your audience to think about it. The more diverse your portfolio of relationships, the broader your influence footprint. It works the exact same way when it comes to innovation and signal scouts. The more diverse your portfolio of relationships, the better chance you have to pick up a signal from a manufacturing opportunity here, a, I kid you not, timeshare client over there, a healthcare client or conversation over here, and a professional service or financial service client over there. And I love this. You do this. You work with a ophthalmology client like you do with a manufacturing client, and you work with you know, a Fortune 50 client. And on the surface, it'd be very easy to say, well, those have nothing in common. Only when you sharpen that aperture or only when you start to sharpen, you're listening not to respond, but truly listen to understand. Only when you sharpen that lens to really see what's not being said or really uncover the hidden agenda, hidden value, hidden needs, will you start to identify those faint market signals. And in my experience, they're best done through these relationships that you build in very diverse camps, diverse buckets. That was David Noor in episode 35. And if you're looking for great ideas for networking, then check out the episode with Patty Danucci as well. Several guests had great insights about ways you can be distinctive, but also true to yourself and your work. One was Mark Levy. Now, you may or may not recognize the name Mark Levy, but you very likely have heard of Marshall Goldsmith or Simon Sinek, They are just two of the many thought leaders, authors, executives, and entertainers that Mark has helped to form and share their stories. He speaks here about how honesty and openness in your message can really help. When you out there listening are trying to differentiate yourself and your brand, one of the most important things is to be as honest as you possibly can about what it's like to work with you. I call it the open kitchen concept of business is what I call it. In the old days when they used to when they used to make restaurants, they would put the kitchen where? In the back, in the corner, in the dark. And so you'd sit there, there would opaque doors in front of it. So you'd sit there and you'd start saying, where's my waiter? Where's my food? I wonder if this place is clean. And you get more and more agitated. And when the doors of the kitchen swung open, you try to catch a glimpse to see if you saw your waiter back there, like eating coleslaw or something like that. (laughs) Did they drop my steak on the floor? That's right. That's right. And you try to see if the floor was clean or whatnot. But now people demand differently. So the open kitchen concept, many of the progressive restaurants, when they create a new restaurant, where do they put the kitchen? In the middle of the dining floor or even up front. And they don't have walls there, although occasionally I'll see glass walls or like handrails to delineate it. And it's because 
People want to see the ingredients. They want to see what the chef looks like. They want to see how the waitstaff interacts. They want to see the techniques being used. You know what I mean? They demand this openness. And really, no matter what it is you're selling out there, I don't care what the thing is you're doing. The more open, I, I'm not talking about giving away NDA secrets or proprietary secrets, but the more open you can be of what it's like to deal with you, the better off you are. Sometimes with my clients, if they're writing a web page, I have them write a web page of what happens when you call. And the web page might even begin, or it can be a video. Like they'll say, when you call, here's what will happen. You will speak to Jim. Jim will ask you questions like blah, 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 and blah, blah, blah. He asks you questions like that because he wants to know blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean? Like, in other words, like it's going through. It's to take the intimidation out of it so people feel already bought into who you are before they even call. That was Mark Levy from Episode 8. And if you're interested in how an entrepreneur has put storytelling at the center of his thriving business, then check out Chris Duke from Anna's Gourmet Goodies. Another very distinctive guest was Jesse Cole. Now, Jesse certainly looks distinctive as the man in the yellow tux, but his very approach to business is different. Jesse and his wife are the owners of the Savannah Bananas, a summer college league baseball team in Savannah, Georgia. Jesse has become a nationally known figure as a champion of, as he puts it, business done differently. The Coles had turned around a similar team in Gastonia, North Carolina, learned a lot about getting attention and interest in one's market, then came to Savannah to launch a team after a long-time minor league team had left town. Two years later, every home game of the Savannah Bananas is a sellout, and there is a waiting list. Here is Jesse talking about generating crazy ideas and testing them out. We gained a ton of experience in Gastonia, and that's where we started. You know, I was just 23 years old, and it was the lowest performing college summer team in the country. I mean, they had less than 200 fans coming to the games, and no one paid attention to that team. And we had to reinvent there, and we started trying ridiculous things like grandma beauty pageants. We did a dig to China night where we actually buried a one-way certificate flight to China, but no accommodations and no flight back. I mean, we were coming up with the most ridiculous ideas in Gastonia. What was second prize? Oh, second, yeah, you didn't get anything else. I mean, we did everything and it was the whole premise. What we realized later was it's whatever's normal to the exact opposite. In case in point, we actually had a, a night called backwards night where we had fans walk into the stadium backwards. We thanked them for coming. Then we started the game in the top of the ninth <laughs> inning, went backwards the entire game. Then after the game, we had the first pitch. We had the national anthem, and our announcer read the pregame announcements for 30 minutes as fans were leaving the stadium. And, you know, what happened was people started talking about us. We realized, you know what? We're not in the business of baseball and wins and losses. We're in the business of entertainment. We're in the business of creating an amazing fan experience. And when we realized what business we're in, it made it very clear what we were trying to do. So when we came to Savannah, we knew it failed because they focused only on the baseball. It wasn't about the fans. It wasn't about entertaining them. So when we first came in, and even though it was in an abandoned storage building, and it was just myself, my wife, our 24-year-old president at the time, and three 22-year-olds right out of college, we had this unbelievable belief that we could be successful. And I think that's something that everyone needs to realize. If you want to be successful and you want to go all in, you have to believe and we believed it. Even though the community wasn't believing in us, we knew we had something different. And that's when we put all the effort and energy into trying to convince and share with the city what we're trying to do. 
That was Jesse Cole. We've had a number of executive coaches and leadership experts on the podcast, to name just a few, Michael Melcher, Ron Carucci, Scott Eblen, Sarah Kennedy. There was also Ken Clark, who is both a therapist and very successful entrepreneur. He talked about the mental health implications of leadership. A lot of our business messaging and leadership challenges have to do with change. Shelley Lofton knows a lot about mergers and acquisitions in the rapidly changing world of retail banking. Shelley is now a senior VP with the American Bankers Association. In episode 29, she talked about her experiences and how important it is to get internal and external messaging right. It is typically the systems part of a merger and acquisition that gets the most attention, but the people aspect of it, in my opinion, is the absolute most difficult and most crucial part. It is also funny that you bring that up. I have been on both sides of mergers and acquisitions, both the acquiring side several times and the acquired side most recently. I have a unique perspective having been on both sides, and I'm grateful for for all of those experiences because they've taught me so much about it. And they've also reiterated what I thought from the beginning, but you're never sure until you're actually there, that people are the most important piece of whether or not that is going to be successful. At my core, I'm a marketer. And I mean, I am the most passionate in particular about branding and culture and how those translate internally and externally and how you link them to strategy and profitability. I believe that the most profitable and healthy institutions have a very strong sense of who they are and have a very strong brand that is also incredibly human. And that empathy is a key in the success of MA activity because, again, people are people. And these transitions are huge changes for people. And people spend a lot of their time and effort and energy at work. And I think it's important as leaders that we remember that and that we realize that they're spending a lot of time and effort and energy with us. And so, the least we can do is clearly communicate as often as we can, even if what we are communicating is that there's no new news to communicate. The more often that you can re-emphasize that to your teams as the process is going, in my opinion, the better. Again, assuming the goal is to retain customers and employees when you go through a merger or an acquisition, then the key to that happening and being successful is hands down communication. And as much as you can tie that to your branding, which should naturally be occurring anyway, but I found in a lot of organizations, there can be even silos between internal communications and branding and marketing, which, you know, to me are two areas that should absolutely be together. Your message inside should inform and and push forward through your message outside. That was Shelley Lofton. For more about the changes and challenges associated specifically to mergers and acquisitions, I recommend you also check out the episodes with Jennifer Fondreve and Constance Derricks. Leadership, clarity of vision, teamwork, and how leaders have to take an exceptional degree of responsibility. Jeff Kemp learned a lot about that 
during his 11 years as an NFL quarterback, including a time when he had to take over as a starter when a guy named Joe Montana got injured. Jeff shared a story from his time as the starting quarterback for the Seattle Seahawks. Jeff had spoken to the press following a loss, expressed his optimism that the team as a whole would pull together, then later had a tough conversation with his friend and teammate, all-pro safety, Eugene Robinson. The first part of this is that Eugene and I were really close friends, and we were both able to speak the truth to each other. And I think that anyone in life, and especially anyone in business in a position of leadership, needs to have friends who can speak the truth to them, okay? And you need to give them permission. So Eugene comes to me on Monday or Tuesday after the game. He goes, hey, Jeff, some of the guys on the defense and some of the defensive coaches have been talking about you and, and wondering if you're a stand-up guy. They heard that interview and they didn't think that you took much responsibility or blame for the loss. And they're questioning you. Oh my gosh, that's my character that was being questioned. I don't think I've ever felt so challenged or hurt as I have when he said that. And I wasn't mad at Eugene, the messenger. I was thankful. I thanked him. But it really gave me the chance to self-examine. And what I realized, Jim, is that I really don't like to fail. And I don't like to be thought of as a failure. And I don't like attention on my mistakes and failures. And I'm an optimist. And I had overemphasized the optimism that we're going to improve and work hard the next week and be okay. And I had not stepped into the moment and accepted my responsibility. I hadn't taken the blame like a team looks for a leader to do. This is especially a message for a CEO or a manager, someone leading a team. If you don't take responsibility and apologize and say, I can do better, I didn't do right. This is what I did and it hurt us and I'm going to improve it. If you don't do that, no one else is going to take responsibility in your team. And so then the performance level is going to drop off all. So I got the chance to kind of wake up to my mistake and let them know that I knew that I was responsible as a quarterback to play better than that and that I'd just been overly optimistic. But later on, Jim, I realized sometimes I shade things and I move past my failures too quickly because I don't want to feel bad about myself. And the truth is I can't engender great leadership and great followership unless I'm willing to face the truth about myself and people respect you far more when you do. So I don't say wallow in your pain and call yourself you know, a shameful loser. That's obviously not the formula, but fully grab responsibility and take the blame, tell people you didn't do as well as you could, you want to do better, and that'll set a tone for the rest of the team taking responsibility when it's their turn. That was Jeff Kemp, former NFL quarterback, now speaker and executive coach. I have two more clips that relate to leadership and focus during this time of great upheaval in business, marketing, and messaging. The first is from Douglas Burdett, an agency owner and also host of the Marketing Book Podcast, one of the top and most influential podcasts in business. Douglas has read more than 200 books for the podcast and interviewed each of their authors. Taking all of that into account, in episode 18, Douglas offered his view of the three types of companies according to their customer orientation. People are very oriented around themselves. Everyone listens to the same radio station, WIFM, what's in it for me. And companies are no different. In this talk, I talked about there's three kinds of companies and everybody works for one of three kinds of companies. It's companies that are focused primarily on themselves, like their own products and their own operations and their own service. I would say probably the majority of companies are that way. And that's an observation, not a criticism. There are some companies that are 
focus primarily on their competitors. Whether they'll admit it or not, most of their strategic decisions are based on what the competition's doing. And that's kind of a losing game, but that's just how some companies are. And the third type of company, which is probably the smaller one, are the companies that are focused on their customers. And it doesn't mean they're paying lip service. It means they really pay a lot of attention to their customers and try to draw insights from that. And they go as far as trying to determine where is friction in the buying process, but more importantly, where is friction in their life? So for instance, a ride-sharing app like Lyft or Uber, they knew that people hated not knowing if they were going to get a cab. They didn't know when it was going to arrive. They didn't know what it was going to cost. They <laughs> and somebody figured out, based on people's unpleasant experiences with cabs, a way to reduce friction and provide a product or service that's become very popular. And another company that does this is Amazon. And Jeff Bezos, the founder, the word is that when he's at meetings at Amazon, he goes into the conference room, whichever conference room it is, and he always wants at least one empty chair in that room. And that chair represents the customer. And invariably, he ends up pointing at that chair during meetings because people forget <laughs> what their focus needs to be. <laughs> you know, he'll say she doesn't want it a day later, or she's not willing to pay for that, or whatever. And I mean, even a company like that is really working very hard to stay focused on their customers. And I've even had authors on the show who talk about, well, there was one author who wrote a book about Amazon, well, a book about business, but he used Amazon as his example. And it was Jeffrey and Brian Eisenberg who wrote Think Like Amazon, even a lemonade stand can do it. And they talked about the principles of Amazon, but any business can do it. And it talked about this customer focus. And even he was joking that if you're a customer, you're going to get good service. But if you're an author trying to sell a book on Amazon, eh, you're going to wait. <laughs> that was Douglas Burdett. And who better to crystallize the upheaval in marketing and sales than Mark Schaefer? Mark is a best-selling author, speaker, and podcast host, one of the most influential people in marketing leadership. Mark says, we are in the third major marketing rebellion of business history, and consumer control is the driver. The first rebellion was against lies, and the second rebellion was against these company secrets, and the third rebellion is against control. We think we control consumers through a customer journey or through a sales funnel or through our marketing messaging, but we don't. They're in control. The sales funnel is gone. Two-thirds of our marketing is occurring without us. And I liked what you said in your introduction about it's, it's not just about your message, but who's carrying your message. And I would contend that today that's almost more important than the message. You know, the classic journalistic questions about who, what, when, where, why. The who, I think, is really important today. Because trust in businesses and brands and advertising has declined 10 years in a row. People trust each other. And that message has to come from other people or it's not going to be believed. So that's really the rebellion that we're in today, acknowledging that we don't really control that marketing message and the marketing pipeline like we used to. Two-thirds of our marketing is occurring without us. Customer is the marketer. How do we help that person do the job? How do we create that message, that compelling, interesting, authentic, relevant idea that they can carry forward? And when that happens, then traditional marketing kind of stops because they're doing the marketing for us. 
That was Mark Schaefer in episode 31. Wow. There you have more than a dozen examples of outstanding guests. And my apologies to the ones I didn't include here specifically. Plus, I also have a few solo episodes on specific topics, how to be trustworthy, how to avoid sending a mangled message, the differences among coaches, consultants, and advisors, and what professionalism means today. All here on the Manage Your Message podcast as a resource for you as a message leader for yourself, for your business, and for the organizations and causes you care deeply about. I have two requests of you. First, please subscribe, rate, and review. You no doubt realize that your five-star review makes a difference in how easy it is for other professionals to learn about the podcast. If you haven't yet subscribed, then please do so right now, and you'll never miss an episode. Second, please let me know how I may help you, your business, or a professional association or event directly. You may email me at jim at jimcar.com, and my mobile number is right on the website. I regularly speak at events and meetings, lead workshops, advise business teams, and help entire organizations with the knowledge, tools, training, and confidence to share their message consistently. And of course, I would be happy to connect with you on LinkedIn as well. Until next time, message managers, thanks for joining the conversation. Thanks for joining us on the Manage Your Message podcast with Jim Carr. You'll find show notes and other resources at manageyourmessagepodcast.com and jimcarr.com. Please help us serve you and other message managers by subscribing to, rating, and reviewing this podcast. And connect with Jim on LinkedIn and on Twitter at Jim Carr. Until next time, we hope your business message is shared well and often.